Let's pray. Lord, would you pour out your spirit upon us as we open up your word this morning and let us rejoice and find great peace from the truth that you triumph over evil. In Jesus' name, amen. In Psalm 76.10, the Bible says, The wrath of man shall praise you. Speaking of God. The wrath of man will praise God. And I think that's a really interesting statement. How in the world is the wrath, the anger of man, going to bring praise to God? And I believe the answer lies in the absolute sovereignty of God over all things. One of the most popular verses of all is, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We're going to see that today in Acts chapter 8. So let's read our text. Acts 8 verse 1, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, Stephen, to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Now, I hope you'll recall last week's message and the week before that. We were talking about Stephen. He was the first martyr of the Christian church. Do you remember what got him into trouble? He was debating certain men in the Hellenistic synagogue in Jerusalem. He was debating them. And the people there couldn't cope with his wisdom and spirit. And so if you can't beat them in a good debate, wouldn't you start attacking them personally? So they, indu they induced men to bring these trumped up charges that he was committing blasphemy against God and Moses, against the temple and the law. They drug Stephen before the council. And the high priest said, are these things so? So in chapter 7, he gives them his uh, explanation of what was going on. And basically, he gives them a long history lesson of what God had done, starting with Abraham all the way down through David and Solomon. And at the very end, Stephen pours it on. He tells them, you guys are stiff-necked. You're uncircumcised in heart and ears. You're doing just what your fathers have always done? Which one of the prophets did they not persecute? And now you have killed the righteous one, meaning Jesus Christ. You've killed Jesus Christ and you've become his murderer. You received the law from angels, yet you haven't kept it yourself. At this point, they, they revolt against him in a, in a very angry and aggressive way. They were cut to the quick, meaning they were wounded really deep within their hearts, and they begin gnashing at him with their teeth, being enraged and furious against him. But remember what God did for Stephen in the, those dying moments, right? The, the moments right before he's led to his death from stoning, God gives him the supernatural vision of heaven. And he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God, probably standing up, because he's usually seated at the right hand of God, to receive his faithful servant into his kingdom, his eternal kingdom. And he tells them about this vision that he saw. He said, Behold, I see the seven heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they couldn't abide by that. So 
They cried out with a loud voice. They covered their ears. They rushed at him with one impulse, like a pack of angry wolves upon their prey. They rushed at him, but Stephen committed his soul to Christ, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he said, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. The sleep of death. And that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. As we work our way through these four verses, there's really only two points I want to make. So this should be pretty simple this morning. Number one, we're going to see the evil of man in persecuting innocent believers. And then we're going to see the triumph of God in bringing good out of their persecution and their evil. So the evil of man and the triumph of God. So look at Acts 8 verse 1. It says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. So Saul was involved in more than just holding the coats of the people that stoned the people. Stoned Stephen that day. He was, in, he was involved in more than that. He seems to be one of those that are pushing for the death penalty in this case. He was in hearty agreement. Meaning, if they took a vote and Saul gave his vote, he voted for the death of Stephen on that day. I have a suspicion, and it's only a suspicion, but I think it's possible, probably quite possible, that Saul was one of those men in the synagogue in Acts chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, that was debating Stephen. So go back to Acts 6-9 and you'll see what I'm talking about there. It says that some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. Well Saul was from Cilicia. Tarsus was like a, a subset of Cilicia. That makes me think maybe Saul was one of the guys in that particular synagogue that was debating Stephen. That would make sense because Saul had a brilliant mind. He had the, like the mind of a lawyer, really sharp. And he also had the greatest teacher, Gamaliel, to instruct him and mentor him. And, and Saul was zealous for the law. He was zealous for the temple. All the things that Stephen was accused of, of violating and blaspheming against. And in verse 10 it says, they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So even though these men were brilliant in their ability to argue and debate, they couldn't cope with the wisdom and the Holy Spirit with which Stephen was speaking. So if, if Saul was one of those people here, perhaps he took personal insult or injury to the fact that he was being bested in this debate. And so, whether, so he, he couldn't win the debate, so what does he do? He tries to find a way to get even, to get rid of Stephen. And he does. He comes up with these charges of blasphemy against the law and the temple. That's only conjecture. Try to read between the lines and it may not even be true, but it, it seems reasonable to me. Um, Acts chapter 8 verse 3 says, Saul began ravaging what an interesting word. How do we use that word in other senses? <clears throat> to ravage somebody. Well, when someone rapes a woman, we speak about that man ravaging that woman, right? It's to violently overcome your enemy or your prey or whoever it is. Saul was ravaging the church and he was entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. 
house after house. Now that tells me a couple things, that this wasn't just one isolated incident, it was house after house after house. There was many incidents where he was taking people out of their homes and dragging them off to prison. The word ravage refers to wholesale and extensive damage and harm done to the church. So this must have been a really horrific time. If you try to put yourself in their position and imagine what it was like for somebody to come into the place where you're worshiping and drag people off. And it says here, men and women, not just the men. Dragging off women too, putting the women in prison. Now if someone drug off the husband and father of a family, that wife is left basically or practically a widow. She no longer has a husband that can help her. If both the husband and wife are dragged off to prison, those children become practically orphans. So families would be broken up by this. This would be just a, a, a time of grief and suffering and anguish. Perhaps hundreds or maybe thousands. I don't know how many believers. We know that there were thousands of believers in Jerusalem. And they were going into house after house, dragging off men and women. It also tells me that the reason they were going into house after house is probably because the Christians met in homes. Like in China. That's where they go. That when they want to drag off people to prison, they go to the, the house churches. They find the pastor from that house church. They arrest him. They drag him off and he goes to prison. Um, I'm not sure if that's happening so much anymore. Uh, in 2008, when we went to China, it was the persecution level had declined some. I think it goes in spurts. But, but yeah, it, that just makes sense. That if the church meets in homes, you go to the home and that's where you find the people to arrest. I think it's probably likely that at this time, the Christians stopped a meeting in Solomon's portico, which was like a, a covered porch area of the temple grounds. It would just be too dangerous. If people, if, if the Jewish men are out there looking for Christians to drag off to prison, you're not going to meet openly in the public square. You're going to go underground. And I'm sure that's what had happened by this point. So what's the end result? Families are split apart. Some women become practically widows. Some children become practically orphans. There's great stress put on the mother if her husband's no longer there to try to eke out a living of survival and take care of her children. At the same time as holding down some kind of a, a job. It, it would be a crazy, crazy stressful time for the, for the church. In Acts 9 verse 1, it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now he's not just breathing out threats. This says he's bringing out threats and murder. <laughs> so it's not just putting them to prison, like we read in Acts chapter 8. Stephen was executed by stoning, and now there are others that are following in his train. You see here something about Saul's extreme zeal on behalf of Judaism, don't you? I mean, he is, he's almost, he's fanatical about trying to purge, in his mind, the pure religion of Judaism from this offshoot, this sect 
these people who believe in Jesus. He wants to exterminate these believers and get rid of them and purify the religion of Judaism. He's trying to stamp out these early Christians. In Acts chapter 22, when he gives his testimony, in verse 4, he says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. So there are people that saw this and could bear witness to the fact that he had done this. And then again in Acts chapter 26, he's giving his testimony. And in verse 9, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. <laughs> he, this is his, these are his own words. He says, I was in raging fury against these Christians. He, it's almost like he had gone crazy in, in anger and fury against these early Christians because he wanted to stamp them out. Notice it says he cast his vote against them. And I imagine what that means is that Paul was a member of the council. And when the council would put someone to death, they would take a vote. And he's back in Acts 1, chapter 8, verse 1, he says he was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And here it says he cast his vote against them and putting them to death. So many commentators believe that Paul at one point was a member of this council. Some of the people that were arrested were brought to the synagogues, it says there in Acts 26, verse 9. They were brought to the synagogues, and Paul tried to get them to blaspheme. So there must have been extensive questioning that would go on when they bring these Christians into the synagogues. You'd have these authorities questioning them, and Paul's trying to make them blaspheme. So he might say something like, Who do you believe Jesus of Nazareth is? And if they said, I believe he's the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, if they were truthful and biblical about their response, he could cry blasphemy. No man can be the Son of God. And the crime of blasphemy was execution by stoning. So he would cast his vote against that person, and that person, if convicted, would die, just like Stephen did. So here is a man who is fanatical in his zeal for Judaism, his zeal for God, a distorted view of God. In John 16, 2, Jesus said there's going to time, a time is going to come when they're going to think they're doing God's service by persecuting you. And that time did come. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, Paul would write, I am the least of the apostles and I'm not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So throughout his whole life, Paul felt this sense of shame and regret for what he had done in injuring and harming and even killing these early Christians. And then he became one of them later. Can you imagine what that would be like? In Galatians 1.13, he said, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure, and I tried to destroy it. 
So he's trying to stamp it out of existence. So there's no Christ, Christian church left. That's his objective. He's the ringleader. So here the church has got to meet secretly. They probably are meeting in fear. Wouldn't you imagine? That at any time, the doors could be uh, broken through. The authorities could come in. They could arrest them and haul them off to jail. Families are being split up. Some are going off to prison. Some are dying. There's weeping and grief and mayhem and havoc going on. The suffering has become so intense that now people are packing up and moving out of Jerusalem just to get rid of this, per I mean, get away from this persecution. That's what we've got in chapter 8. It says that, um, therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. So they're scattered from Jerusalem. It's no longer safe to live in Jerusalem. So they've got to leave their jobs, they've got to leave their homes, and they've just got to get out before someone breaks into their house church meeting and arrests them and takes them away. Now the actions of these persecutors was evil. They were inflicting pain and suffering on innocent people. Their only crime was that they believed in Jesus, which is not a crime. So the men doing this are guilty of heinous crimes. And in 1 Thessalonians 2.16, the Apostle Paul, when he's writing to them, he says, those Jews who persecuted the church always filled up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. So God's wrath came upon the Jews for their treatment of these early believers. So what they did was wrong. The, the crimes they committed were evil. And God's wrath is going to come upon them. So there we see something of the evil going on in the early church. But let's turn that around. Let's look on the flip side of the coin. And I want you to see the triumph of God in all of this. Do you remember the book of Genesis where we, we get the story of Joseph? His brothers hated him. And they were envious of him because the father had this special relationship with him and made him a coat of many colors. And they couldn't, they couldn't stand him. So they ended up selling him as a slave to these people that went, that went down to Egypt. And so Joseph ends up as a servant down in Egypt. God is with him. And so he starts off at Potiphar's house. And then he ends up in prison for 12 years. But eventually God takes him out of prison and exalts him to the second most powerful man in the entire nation and gives him wisdom to give to the... Um, uh, what do you call the head of, the, of Egypt? Pharaoh. Pharaoh. Yeah, he tells the Pharaoh, this is what you need to do. You need to start saving for seven years so you have enough grain stored up that when this drought and this famine comes, you'll be able to help uh, all the people who need food. So he comes up with this really wise plan. Uh, Joseph's brothers eventually come down to Egypt to get food so they don't starve to death. And at the very end of the story, in chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph tells his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. They meant it for evil. They were trying to do evil to their brother. And God allowed them to do that, but God had another plan in the, in the background that was going on the whole time. And he, he knew, he could see the end from the beginning, and he knew what he was going to do in the end to exalt him and, and bring good out of this terrible evil that they had perpetrated. That's very similar to what we have going on here in Acts chapter 8. 
these people represented by Saul were evil men doing horrible things and God allowed it but God had a plan in it he had a purpose in it and he's gonna bring good out of it what's the effect of the persecution well look at look at verse 1 it says on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria <laughs> can you hear me <laughs> okay okay Judea and Samaria where do we find those uh, those those names earlier in the book of Acts No, it's not then. It's the words of Jesus in chapter 1 where he says, but you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you're going to receive, and you'll be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria. There's our two words. And even to the remotest part of the earth. So that was Jesus' plan. You're going to start here in Jerusalem and be my witnesses here. Then you're going to go to Judea and Samaria and to the remotest part of the earth. Well, had they done what Jesus told them they were going to do? Where were they at this point? Jerusalem. They hadn't left Jerusalem yet. We're eight chapters into the book of Acts, and they hadn't done anything but stay in Jerusalem. Now, they'd done a good job in Jerusalem because their enemies had said, you have filled this city with your teaching. So they had filled Jerusalem with their teaching, but they hadn't gone outside of Jerusalem. I wonder if they'd just become comfortable I mean, imagine how exciting it would have been to see God saving people every day. Day by day, the Lord was adding to the church such as should be saved. Multitudes are coming to Christ. The apostles are doing the great signs and wonders and healings there in Jerusalem. Uh, the, the fellowship would be rich. Day by day, they're meeting in the temple and from house to house. There's this, it's like in the Jesus movement, you know, when God is doing something new and there's this fresh excitement and people, you're not, you're not doing your spiritual thing out of duty, you're doing it because you're just so excited about it. Well, that, that must have been what it was like in the early chapters of Acts. They're in their comfort zone and, and the Lord has to kick them out of Jerusalem. So what does he do? He allows a persecution to come in. They're scattered. They have to leave Jerusalem now it's no longer safe to stay so they leave Jerusalem and God's purpose for them is fulfilled they're scattered and they go about doing what It says preaching the word so they're scattering the word wherever they go and they're going into Judea which is the larger it's like Jerusalem's the city Judea is the county you might say it's the bigger region and then also into Samaria so now they're headed out of Jerusalem. They're, they're going into these other areas where Jesus originally had told them that's where they were to go. And they're actually fulfilling God's will at this point. It's kind of like I, I think of this as uh, they're, they're baby chicks in the nest. And the mother chick says, okay, you're, you're old enough to fly. I'm going to push you out. <laughs> And God is pushing them out of Jerusalem because it's time for them to go and make disciples in other places. 
I also find it interesting in Acts chapter 8 that these were not the apostles that were doing the preaching. Because we're told in verse 1 that everybody was scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. They stayed, but everybody else left. So you've got ordinary, everyday, garden variety Christians. Not the super special ones, the apostles. These are just regular Christians. They're the ones that are preaching the word as they're scattered. I would love to see a resurgence of the laity. <laughs> I don't even believe there should be a biblical distinction between clergy and laity. You know, we're all the one people of God. But ordinary Christians going about their daily lives or wherever they work or their neighborhoods and just scattering the gospel, preaching the word. The word here for preaching the gospel, the word for preaching, is actually the verb form of gospel. So they're gospeling the word, you could say. <laughs> they're sharing. They, they were, they're, if, if these are ordinary Christians, they're not preachers, right? They're not apostles. They're not, they're not gifted preachers. They're just regular people. But they're gospeling wherever they go. They're saying, hey, I got, I got to tell you what the Lord did in my life. Jesus is real. Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. He's the Son of God. He changed me. He, he made me a new person. He's forgiven me all my sins. And I mean, any Christian could say that. And that's what they were doing. They were being scattered and just sharing what the Lord had done for them. Saul's design was to exterminate the church. He wanted to stop the spread of the gospel. And what he did backfired on him. It actually caused the gospel to be spread to these new regions that it was not even being spread before. And isn't that like the Lord? The devil tries to do one thing, and the Lord is so great that he can overturn the devil's design and actually bring about his own design. You've heard of that expression, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Well, here we have a good example of it. What the enemy meant for evil... God meant for good. Okay, so that's, those are the two big ideas I wanted you to see from this text. The evil of man, the triumph of God. So I want to bring out three lessons and one exhortation from this text this morning. So the first lesson is, men commit evil freely. Was, did God put a gun to Saul's head and tell him, you, you're going to have to go around persecuting the church? No. Saul did it because Saul wanted to do it. Because Saul thought that was the thing. He probably thought that was what he should be doing. I'm, I'm sure he did. He was just ignorant of God's will. But he committed these acts of atrocity freely. He wasn't forced. He wasn't coerced by God to do them. And when men commit their evil actions, they're only doing what they want to do. God doesn't force people to do evil. He doesn't tempt any man to do evil, and he doesn't force any man to do evil. We do that freely of our own will. Second lesson, God holds men responsible for their evil actions, and he punishes them for it. We found that from 1 Thessalonians 2.16. God's wrath has come upon these Jews persecuting the church. God's wrath. And... When Peter has been preaching in the book of Acts, every time he reminds them that they've murdered their Messiah. And that's what's made them so angry and has pierced them to the heart. Stephen brought the same charge against them. You've murdered the righteous one. And that's when they got so uptight, they gnashed their teeth at him. So God holds men responsible for these evil actions. 
And he's going to punish them for it. But number three, God uses evil to accomplish his purposes. Not just good to accomplish his purposes. God even uses evil to accomplish his purposes. All we have to do is look at the cross of Christ to see that. Can there be any more evil act perpetrated in all of human history than when God himself visits his creation, his creation nails him to a cross? Right? Can, there can't be anything more evil than that. But can there be any more great act of blessing that has come forth from anything that's ever happened than the, from the cross? That's where our salvation has come from. The atonement of Jesus Christ has released us from sin, right? It's born God's wrath that should have come against us. Someone once made this statement that I think is really powerful. They said, what God decreed in eternity, men will demand in time. What God decreed from eternity past, men will demand in time. That's what happened with the cross. God decreed the cross from eternity, but men demanded that Jesus go to that cross. And they didn't do it because they were being forced to do it. They did it of their own will. But yet it was decreed by God. Now how in the world can that, <laughs> how do you put those ideas together? I can't put them together. I don't know how God does this. I don't know how he does this. But God is so great that he can take all the evil of the, of the world and somehow he can cause his purposes to flow out of that without violating anyone's will. I, it's, it, it boggles my imagination how he's able to do this. But I'm, great, I'm so grateful that we serve a God who's able to do that. Right? God is not the victim. <laughs> Debbie? Yeah. Here, yeah. It doesn't change his goodness. No, 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 not at all. Change his attributes or who he is. Sometimes it's hard for us, right? From our perspective, looking at the situation, we have no idea. Could God even be in this? Could God be? But it's just our limited perspective. But God's looking down on everything. He sees the end from the beginning. He sees the whole thing at once. He sees 10,000 good things flowing out of this horrible thing. And we need to have the eyes of faith. So that we can trust when we're in the dark. When we can't see. One day we'll be able to see. Even as we have been clearly seen by God and known by Him, we're going to be able to see. But in this time, we've got to trust and have faith. So here's my exhortation. Take heart when you consider all the evil in the world, including the persecution of the church, which is still going on today in many different countries of the world. Where they put their life on the line when they become a Christian. If you get converted in a predominantly Muslim country, it could mean that your head is severed from your body if you're baptized as a Christian. Um, I mean, that's how, that's how serious the stakes are in some places of the world. But take heart. Because God is going to bring something good. Even from that persecution. So, people ask me, well, Brian, aren't you afraid? It seems like America is going down the toilet. 
It seems like it's getting worse and worse. It seems like we're going to end up being persecuted like other countries. Are you afraid of that? Actually, I think that's the best thing that could happen for us. You know, in the book of Revelation, there's seven letters to seven churches. There's only two churches in those seven letters that don't have any rebuke from the Lord. He doesn't call them to repent. One of them is the church of Smyrna. And the church of Smyrna was the persecuted church of that time. In fact, the Lord says in Revelation 2.10 to that church, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. When the church is persecuted, it tends to be purged and purified, just like this church was. The Lord didn't have to call them to repentance because they were being persecuted. Their life was on the line for their faith. And if that kind of persecution comes here to America, it's only going to mean that the church is going to become stronger. We are going to become more purified. All the materialism and the lusts of the flesh are going to go out the window when you're persecuted. I mean, you're going to stand strong in that day, and it's actually going to be a very good thing. And the wrath of man is going to praise the Lord. Just like we read in Psalm 76.10. It's tempting to despair when we contemplate all the horrific evil in the world. You know, you look at the, the terrible evils that came about. I, I think of the Holocaust, but there's many other times just like it. It is evil. It's blameworthy. God is going to punish it. Yet God is going to use it to accomplish his good ends. Ephesians 1.11 says, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. One day all wrongs are going to be righted. All the universe is going to see that God has triumphed over evil by actually using that evil to bring about his own purposes. It's an amazing, amazing truth of the word of God. But that ought to help us to rest and to, I guess that's the best word for it, just to rest. If this should happen in your lifetime and mine, lift up your head. Trust in the Lord, because God is still with you. Every person in this world is going to die. Just The only question is when. Are you going to be 75 or are you going to be 25? We're all going to die. It's only a matter of a few years on earth. When you look at it in that perspective, death is not such a horrible thing because it's going to happen to us anyway. What, what is the most important thing is what we were singing in that song earlier today. Are they going to remember Jesus by my life? Or am I trying to build my own kingdom and get people to remember me? You know, that, that's really where it, where it lies. So that's what I want you to remember this morning. Men are evil. Men commit evil acts. But God will triumph over those evil acts and bring to pass what he wants to take place. Lord, would you help us to take courage by these truths? And when we can't understand what's going on, Lord, help us to trust you. When it's dark... Let us turn our eyes upward, Lord, and focus them on you and remember everything that we've come to know about you in your word. You are trustworthy. And you are going to bring good out of evil. 
You will cause all things to work together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.